listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. I went on a field trip this month to somewhere very exciting and I even got to go on a plane. There's quite a lot to say about the place I went. So here's just part one of my report from the other side of the world. I'm out in Washington State in the US, uh, in eastern Washington, uh, near uh, a place called uh, Richland, the Tri-Cities area, uh, and I'm standing outside uh, a grey and white building with a bunch of offices in, a good, there's a car park here, it looks perfectly normal. normal. If I turn around, uh, I can see a concrete tube coming out of the side of the building and stretching for um, well, I happen to know it's four kilometres in one direction, so that's a concrete tube a few metres across, stretching four kilometres away, and if I could see the other side of the building, there'd be another one there as well. Uh, I'm at the LIGO Hanford Observatory here uh, in uh, Washington, and uh, I'm here for a teacher conference, so there's teachers here learning about astronomy, uh, I've been talking to them and learning other ways of teaching uh, little bits of astronomy uh, as well, which is, which is fabulous. I've been involved with the LIGO instrument uh, and the LIGO scientific collaboration along with its cousins, its, its, its siblings, if you like, the Virgo collaboration and the CAGRA collaboration are now part of the same network of gravitational wave detectors. Uh, and uh, it's wonderful to come out uh, to the site. Uh, I've never been to this part of the USA uh, before. It is a pretty dry, arid landscape. There's a little bit of sagebrush in the, uh, on, on the ground. I can see a few mountains. I'm looking now at Rattlesnake Mountain. Uh, this is land with uh, various uh, native people have been uh, inhabiting this land for uh, time immemorial, is the phrase often used, uh, and that this is, this is now used by this, uh, by this observatory and uh, other facilities uh, on the site. The Hanford site is actually quite something to behold. The buildings themselves don't look uh, too uh, extraordinary. They're, they're you know, normal buildings you might see, but that four kilometre tube really is, uh, really is something. And yesterday, uh, I, and a couple of days ago, I got the opportunity to step inside uh, with, the, with the teachers, to get a little tour around one of the clean rooms uh, to go and see what was going on inside. Uh, we couldn't see the mirrors and the optics that are used. Uh, it was currently uh, off at the time because they were doing their maintenance work. Uh, but now it's, uh, uh, it's back up and running. Uh, they have a laser shining uh, down these beams. The laser is going four kilometers down the beam line uh, and then reflecting off a mirror at the other end and coming back four kilometers. Uh, and then actually there's another arm, so there's two arms in an L shape uh, doing that as well. And the whole point of this, the LIGO Hanford Observatory, the whole point is to measure gravitational waves, ripples in space and time, predicted by Albert Einstein over a hundred years ago and detected for the very first time in 2015 by this observatory and its partner the, in Louisiana, the Livingston Observatory down uh, in southeastern United States. So it's really wonderful to be here on the site and I thought I'd wander around and try and speak to a few people uh, about what's going on here uh, on, uh, it's a little bit of a breezy day, but it's, uh, it's the high 30s in centigrade, so it's a wonderful sunny day to be outside and uh, find out what's going on here. Well, we've just stepped outside now and I'm joined by uh, Dr. Mike Landry, who's head of LIGO Hanford Observatory. So you're currently running this entire site. Uh, or in charge of running this entire site with a, t a big team of people. I appreciate it. Uh, Absolutely, a big team. Appreciate. Um, 
We're standing on one of two sites uh, that's detecting gravitational waves in LIGO, and there's, there's, there's Virgo and Geo and Kagra, and there's going to be LIGO India. So there's a big network of these sites. They're not cheap. They're very, uh, they're very expensive to build and to operate and so on. Why are we doing them? What's the, what's the point of all this, Mike? Yeah, there's really a twinned purpose, and that's to both understand the theory of gravity. What's the right theory of gravity? Is it Einstein's general relativity? which seems to have met all challenges so far, or is there some theory of gravity uh, beyond that, some quantum theory of gravity of which LIGO may inform of. And it's to do astronomy, a new form of astronomy, gravitational wave astronomy. So if all of uh, you know astronomy prior to gravitational wave astronomy is essentially looking at the universe primarily through, through light, um, light in the form of visible waves or gamma rays or radio waves and everything in between. Um, that's, that's look, you know, pointing and looking. Gravitational waves are, some, not, they're not sound, but they have an observable which is like sound. And so they're, they're caused by the stirred up motions of bulk matter, such as, you know, stars revolving around each other, black holes, neutron stars, or stars exploding in, uh, cacophony of gravitational waves from supernova, or maybe the early universe, something left over from the Big Bang. And all of those sources of gravitational waves, can we can learn about them in a way that's completely different from that of electromagnetic means. And so we'll learn complementary things about uh, old known love sources like neutron stars through gravitational waves. But we also may... Uh, learn entirely new things of which you can only learn from through gravitational waves, like peering into the core of a supernova through gravitational waves, or seeing the gravitational waves from the early universe. LIGO may well not do that, or sister observatories in Virgo and Kagra may, may well not be able to observe that source, but it's such an important source that you know future gravitational wave detectors are the terrestrial ones, maybe more likely space-based ones, uh, may see those waves and learn something about the early universe that you have no other means possible. Mm. And this, this doesn't, I mean, you said it's, it's doing astronomy, it's doing gravitational wave astronomy. Um, it, it looks absolutely nothing like uh, any telescope I've ever seen. It, I mean, radio telescopes can look pretty weird. It doesn't even look anything like a radio telescope. And it's big. It's four kilometers on an arm. Uh, how does this thing work? How does LIGO work? Yeah, it it's, looks the way it does, this giant L shape, because of the signature that we're looking for, uh, gravitational waves. What do gravitational waves do um, and what effect do they cause? If, if you, say, had a hula hoop in space, a big multi-million meter diameter hula hoop, maybe not made of solid uh, hoop, but just the thousands of satellites arranged in a ring, if you have a gravitational wave go down the axis of that ring um, it will compress along one axis so like maybe it will squeeze one axis and expand the other which is at right angles to it and then vice versa expand the first and contract the second so basically it's taken that ring which is a circle and compressed it into an ellipse and then vice versa an ellipse on the other axis and that vibration you know the size of it the frequency of it how that changes that encodes the astrophysics of the source that's doing the waving. So you can take that, you could make a ring detector, and you could say, oh, let's learn about 
colliding black holes or exploding stars through the gravitational waves that they emit. We don't make a ring detector on the Earth because that's sort of an expensive thing to do. Mm. So we'll monitor the two Cartesian axes of that ring. So we'll monitor the X and Y axis. So we have an L-shaped detector, uh, which is really, we're sending laser light down a four-kilometer uh, long arms, a pair of arms, and that light reflects off the end mirrors, and that light comes back. And those mirrors at the end stations, they kind of act like survey stakes, demarking out space-time. And we look for the tiny change in length of the arms due to the passage of a gravitational waves, deflecting, you know, an arc, a circle into this sort of an ellipse. It's a really tiny change, yeah. you know, 10 to the minus 19 meters or 10 to the minus 18 meters, a few thousandths the size of a proton. That's all the, the kind of modulation, the change in the length of our arms that we see, but that's enough. And that's a staggeringly small measurement. So if we were to take a survey stake and stick it out, stick a mirror on the top of it and take it four kilometers over to, <laughs> to my left and stick it in the ground and then shine a laser on it, um, we couldn't do this measurement like that. What, what do you have to do to be able to measure the motion of a mirror to the accuracy of uh, the you know, a thousandth of the diameter of a proton? That's a great thought experiment, sticking two stakes in the ground four kilometers apart and measuring their changing uh, distances due to, to whatever, through, through mm. a laser. I like that a lot. Because that uh, distance is going to be howling away about 10 billion times more motion uh, than we would expect a gravitational wave to produce, precisely because we stake them into the ground and the ground moves. The whole Earth, you know, is jiggling away with seismic motion from, you know, nearby small quakes and distant large ones and cultural noise, anthropogenic noise in the forms of human beings moving around. I can hear a truck in the background on mm -hmm. the highway. Uh, that's shaking the ground at slightly higher frequencies than most quakes do. And I can hear a far, I can hear some sort of aircon system or something oh, yeah. buzzing away, right? That's all yeah. going to be shaking the, that's right. shaking the ground. And, and uh, if you look around our lab, you see all those air conditioning units are all separated from the main buildings by hundreds of meters precisely to not shake mm. the detectors themselves. And so you ask, what, what are the things you have to do? Well, one is you have to make your mirrors very still. And that's an enormous enterprise. Ultimately, the mirrors, like those end mirrors that are reflecting the light and helping us measure the changing length of the arms, they're suspended by multiple stages as pendula. Because if you, if you hold up a pendulum, people can do this at home. They can just tie like a brick to a string or something mm. like that. And if you shake the brick slowly through that string, that brick's going to move. If you mm. move it very inch it along, that brick's going to move. If you move it at its resonant pendulum frequency, the, the, the brick will get kicked up. But if you move it quickly at high, higher and higher frequencies, that upper suspension point of the brick, the brick stays relatively still. And, and that's really car, how your car cab works. If you're driving along and your wheels are thumping away, the car cab is separated by springs and dampers so that the cab itself is suspended and it stays sort of still. So you can hear the road noise, which yeah. is the wheels bouncing around right. on the concrete or the tarmac or whatever, exactly. but you don't feel normally <laughs> the, uh, the vibration that is causing the sound. You, that you really don't. You yeah. really are hearing mostly the sound of it. And it's only the low-frequency multimeter dips in the road that spoil your nice isolation. Yeah. That's a low-frequency actuation, and so you feel that one in the seat of your pants as you go mm -hmm. thumping down. And so um, 
that, that's what we do. We, we actually suspend those mirrors as pendula in m- multiple stages in order to make them pristinely still, you know, to achieve this sensitivity of 10 to the minus 19 meters. Just how, how small a signal is it you're measuring? Well, if we were trying to, this is not the experiment we do, but if you were trying to measure the distance to the nearest star from the Earth, Proxima Centauri, other than our own, of course, uh, it'd be like watching that change by the width of the human hair. That's the kind of modulation 10 to the minus 19 meters is effectively it's, for us. Yeah. It's over- unimaginable, right? I mean, yeah, you can't, you can't, it's yeah. one of the problems with this, you can't think of an analogy that's yeah, <laughs> small that's really enough useful, that, that's, right? uh, <laughs> that you can imagine both, both ends of the scale, I guess. Yeah, four light years is already yeah. pretty hard to, to yeah, decide, right. you know, how, how far that is. And, and then the other technology, so you've obviously got, um, you, you mentioned shining a laser. I mean, you're, you're really on the cutting edge of laser technology for some of this, at least making the lasers as, as pure and accurate as, as can be. So almost, I mean, are there any bits of this instrument that are bog standard? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a few things that are off the shelf, but yeah, much of it is, is, uh, is really sweet technology that's developed by the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. So take the Albert Einstein Institute and LZH, the company that made, uh, and Neolase, the companies that made these lasers that we use in, in LIGO. They're part of the collaboration uh, AEI, and they initiated and spearheaded the development of these extraordinary pure color infrared lasers, and some of the some of the most very frequency stabilized lasers in the world, and uh, we need them for our interferometers. So they they uh, built up ones that can have the qualities that allow you to measure a gravitational wave. They contribute that as part of their uh, work for the collaboration. And it's an in-kind contribution, a really critical one in terms of the infrastructure, uh, uh, that, that the technical components that make the observatory go. And we install them and run them to, to illuminate our interferometer. And there's uh, you know, one main laser here and another at Livingston. We have spare components. We're upgrading them currently to higher power. And uh, they're a key component of the, uh, just like your mirrors have to be very still, the laser light that samples the positions of those mirrors has to be very pure. Otherwise, you'll inject that noise mm. from the laser onto your measurement. I'm joined now by Corey Gray, who is uh, one of the operators of LIGO Hanford. Uh, now, Corey, for a while you were lead operator uh, here at Hanford. What does operating a uh, an observatory like a LIGO detector involve? Yeah, it's uh, it changed over the years. I've been with the project since 1998, hired as an operator. And uh, so I've gotten to see two different versions of the detector. So we've operated as initial LIGO when I first started for a few years. And then right now we're with uh, operating the advanced LIGO detector. And uh, for the most part, it's fairly, uh, it's an it's a, it's a, a easy job in that a lot of work has already been done up front by some of the scientists and other operators to let us use automated tools that do a lot of the button pushing and sliding of sliders and changing gains and doing a lot of the stuff that you would usually have to do by hand. But we have these automated tools that make the, the, the procedure fairly simple. There's things that uh, always are issues for us for uh, running these detectors, mainly 
uh, well, there's a list of them, but uh, environmental noise is a big thing that we have to worry about. If there's a big earthquake, uh, the operators are going to have to be ready and on deck to, to uh, get the machine back up. Uh, there's also the, the times when there are triggers or candidate signals that roll through. Uh, we have to follow procedures for uh, making sure that everything is looking good for our machine. So, yeah, there's kind of an array of different things that we have to do as operators. And, and what do you, so you sit in the control room, it's a room filled with monitors, big monitors, small monitors, clocks, timers, you know, alerts going off, so I don't know, there's a flashing lights at times, I know there's a, there's a little speaker that reads out what the laser's doing, or what the detector's <laughs> doing, and, and, and so on, so there's loads of stuff going on, going on there. When you're operating it, what, what kind of things are then happening in the machine? What, what things are moving and changing in the detector itself? Yeah, the detector is a very complex instrument. Uh, and so we basically run through different things. So, uh, okay, so if we're, we're not in an, a well-aligned state, uh, it's, it's one procedure that we would have to do out of, you know, not very often, but is uh, run a full alignment of all the mirrors for the, the detector for the different cavities that we have. Uh, so that's one thing that we would, you sometimes have to do every, it depends, it could be every day or it could be every few days. But if we have an aligned machine, the, the automated scripts will just run through different uh, uh, steps, such as locking different cavities for the machine, uh, and also raising the power of the, the main laser for the, the machine as well, and just setting different settings for us to get to high sensitivity for the detector. And so if you start from the very bottom, let's say uh, we're ready to go up and go online for high sensitivity to record data, that generally takes about 30 to 45 minutes. I mean, I, I, that's just a rough guess. It's, mm. it, it'll Sometimes it could be longer, sometimes it could be shorter. But yeah, there's just a lot of, there's so many things that mm. get done to get us up to high sensitivity. And when you say this is automated and there's this code that moves the sliders uh, that, that runs through this procedure, that's based on 25 years of experience of figuring out how those sliders have to move and how fast and, you know, how, how yeah. new stuff. So there's, as you said, the stuff been done up front. There's a, a lot of stuff been done up front, right? Yeah, that's actually what's going on right now. So a lot of the, the commissioners or the scientists who are here are doing a lot of that work so that we could streamline the automated tools to, to make it so that's easy for us. Because losing half an hour in the middle of an observing run <laughs> when you're trying to be online is, is not ideal. You want to be online exactly. for... As, as long as possible, I guess, or as, as much as possible. Exactly. That's the name of the game. We never know when a signal is going to pass through the earth. So as an operator on shift, when we're in an observing run, we're running 24-7. Uh, the one thing that uh, visitors always, or, or colleagues look at first when they walk in the control room is to see how the last 24 hours have been. You want to be up and at high sensitivity for long stretches because we never know when a signal is going to mm -hmm. pass through the earth. Uh, if we're down for more than an hour, then you might get some comments from other coworkers saying, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> so you don't want to have to deal with those kind of questions. You don't want to be the one who's has the machine down when a, a you know, monumental event happened to happen. So mm. you just, you always want to make sure that the machine is up and recording data. You're listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, where I'm reporting from LIGO Hanford Observatory. The detector is constantly being upgraded and is currently undergoing a bit of an overhaul. I wandered over to the control room to find a bit more about that process. I'm joined now by Dr. Georgia Mansell and Dr. Craig Cahley. So welcome both. Um, thanks for welcoming me into the uh, to the office. There's all sorts of aircon going on, so offices are never never perfect for uh, for recording. But that's because it's um it's a pretty warm place here in uh, <laughs> Eastern Washington State. Um, 
Now, you're both commissioners for, for LIGO. So um, uh, I guess, Georgia, I'll, I'll, I'll come to you first. What, what does a commissioner do? Yeah, so our jobs are to make the interferometer as sensitive as possible and as stable as possible. So we spend most of our time in the control room, you know, controlling the interferometer remotely, like moving optics around and, you know, getting the interferometer locked and, and stable and ready for observing. And we spend some of our time aligning optics on tables or in-chamber installing stuff. So, so a bit of computational work, a bit of hands-on, you know, getting the wrench, getting the spanner out and tightening uh -huh. up, starting tightening stuff up. I, I mean, when you say moving objects uh, and, and moving mirrors, Craig, I mean, if I have an experiment where I'm moving a mirror, I get an Allen key out and I undo it and I move it a bit. This is, this is a little bit more sensitive than that. How, do you, how does one move a mirror in something as sensitive as LIGO? Uh, well, it takes a lot of planning from people far before us. Um, we have very fancy suspensions upon which there's, uh, you know, electromagnetic coils glued on, and there's magnetic coils glued onto the mirrors themselves, and so you run some current through the coil, and that pushes on your magnet. And then we have even fancier electrostatic drives, which are, you know, pushing on the uh, mirror itself, which is a dielectric. So you basically just run some. Um, uh, electric current and put a voltage bias on the right behind the mirror. It's like maybe five millimeters behind the mirror and that changes the electric field that's going through the mirror, which in turn forces on the mirror. And it's an extremely um, fancy little suspension setup that we've got to control our, the lengths and positions of our mirrors to the precision that we need because you can't have super noisy suspension because then you're not going to be able to detect gravitational waves with that. And when you say the precision you need, how accurate are you controlling these mirrors? So that's an interesting question because not all of the mirrors, not all the cavities need to be super precisely controlled as uh, others. So our arm cavities are the ones which need to have the best, you know, that's why they're the quad suspensions as opposed to the triple suspensions of the other, of the other mirrors. Um, so the arm cavities, I think, have to be controlled down to, you know, 10 to the minus uh, 20 is usually the sensitivity to gravitational waves uh, that we... So you can't have um, the mirror shaking uh, mm -hmm. above that. You want to keep it to the point where that is sort of the uh, noise floor and your actuator doesn't cause additional noise like that. Now, Craig, as, as, as I came into the building to do this, do this recording, the, the interferometer here at, Han at LIGO Hanford Observatory had been locked for overnight, 15 hours or something it had been sitting. So it, it was, in principle, detecting gravitational waves. It could, if something had come in, I guess it could, have, it could have picked something up. And then about an hour ago, that stopped. I don't think it was me. Uh, <laughs> and there was there was an earthquake in Vanuatu, I believe, oh, yeah. um, that that knocked it out of a lot, or contributed to it knocking it out of alignment. So what happens? What happens now? If we were mid observing run, it's, it's getting ready to observe in a few months. But if we were mid observing run, presumably it'll be all hands to the deck to get it back to work. So I guess not quite as much pressure, maybe. But what what do you do now? Well, so if we're in the middle of an observing run. We hopefully will have our interferometer tuned to the point where it's very simple to reacquire. And um, we always have an operator on duty, so the operator is the person who's always on site, and they're all, their job is to make sure you know that the interferometer is running smoothly, 
and then when the nephrometer comes out of lock, they push the buttons and make sure that it gets back to where it needs to be in a you know reasonable amount of time. It takes about 20 minutes, something like this. Mm-hmm. But we, we try to make it as quick as we can, but it takes a little bit to bring all those degrees of freedom under control. Um, and so, yeah, what happens now as like as far as today, today we're in commissioning mode, so we're not observing. So we're trying to always improve the interferometer to get it to that state where it's always at the highest sensitivity, you know, most power resonating in the arms. Um, and so today we'll probably, you know, get to the point where we're pushing the limits of the interferometer, you know, trying to increase the power is one way we're trying to um, increase the input power so that you have more power resonating in the arms because um, that leads to you know more more power in the arms means that more um, laser light will be scattered by a passing gravitational mm-hmm. wave and so we'll be more sensitive to um, passing gravitational okay. waves um, so you push to the limits in that way uh, by increasing power, and you also push the limits by reducing noise, other noise sources. These are technical noise sources, um, such as uh, laser frequency, uh, uh, you know, noise, which is not gravitational waves, and um, we also have excess motion from our um, from our optics that we're trying to calm down to the point where you know. It's not blocking our gravitational wave signal. And this is, really so this is the mirrors or other bits of optics just kind of wobbling in some way or jiggling yeah. or whatever. There's loads of ways that um, things move around which are not causing, you know, not being caused by gravitational waves. So we're, we're looking for the motion that is due to a gravitational wave, right? But, you know, atoms in our interferometer are jiggling around. And so we have to have a big beam which averages over the area of the optic. Um, but it still um, creates, creates what we call thermal noise. There's quantum noise, which Georgia was just talking about, um, which is a sort of a fundamental limit to our interferometer. And there's also seismic noise, so the Earth itself is shaking the whole interferometer. And um, when, you, when you do that, you have some residual uh, motion of your mirrors, even though we have these fancy you know, isolation platforms, we have these fancy sus- suspensions to keep that seismic noise from shaking the mirrors too much, it still gets down there to, at some level, especially at lower frequencies. And finally, the biggest technical noise where we think we can win is controls noise, um, which is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, and that's, you know, keeping our uh, loops under control, keeping our mirrors exactly where they need to be and pointing exactly the way that they need to point. That sort of um, can reintroduce noise from our sensors and because our sensors are not perfect. And so um, you you have to manage your, your loops in a very, it's, it's, a, it's a fiddly business, you know, because you want to have a high loop control so that you can really suppress the displacement of those mirrors. But if you have your loop control too high, then you start imprinting sensor noise on your on your mirrors, which is not real. It, mm. it wouldn't be on the mirror if, if you didn't have to control it, but you just have to control it. You're measuring you moving the mirror rather than just letting the mirror hang there and do its own thing, I guess. Exactly. And so you have to like manage both of these concerns, displacement and sensor noise. So 
it gets it gets in lock. You you get it back after it going out of lock. So later today, it, it it's then working again. What's 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 next on the roster, Georgia? Of, of what's what's happening next in terms of commissioning LIGO and improving it? Yeah. So there's two paths that we have to go down. The first is increasing the input power. Um, so we're trying to push this up and up and up until you know we have as much power in the infrared as we can. The limit there is what we can get from our laser. So we want to get it up to about 100 watts going into the interferometer, which will be how many kilowatts? Mm. Like I think it'll be about 500-ish, yeah. 500 kilowatts. So, so 500 kilowatts, half a megawatt in the arm of, yeah. of power any one time. That's, that's a lot of power. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, record setting. Yeah. <laughs> no one has ever done this before. Yeah, I think our, our record at the moment is on order of 300 kilowatts. Okay. Uh, so you're nearly doubling that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as we push that power up, we have all kinds of problems come up, different like angular instabilities, or sometimes we have problems where our test mass, like the acoustic mode of our test mass overlaps with a higher order mode in the cavity, and we start to have this unstable ring up. And there's all kinds of weird problems that happen when we increase the power. And that's because the laser pushes, though the laser reflects off the mirror, it does push the mirror, mm -hmm. albeit a little bit, but it's quite a powerful laser, 500 megawatts, mm -hmm. sorry, sorry, 500 kilowatts, yeah. that, uh, yeah, it does then, and, and when you're trying to measure it to one ten, one thousandth, one ten thousandth of diameter of, of a proton, if, if, if not more, that's, that's important. Yes. Oh, yeah. Radiation yeah. pressure is a huge concern um, yeah. at those levels of power. Mm. And then the, the other path that we need to go down before we're ready for observing is noise hunting. And especially at the lower frequencies, like below 100 hertz, we need to eliminate controls noise. We have some mystery noise that we need to, well, <laughs> we would like to work out what it is and then crush it, <laughs> get yeah. it out of our, our sensitivity, our gravitational sensitivity. Today we're working, I'm working on a very specific thing. Today I'm working on the output mode cleaner jitter. So the last cavity in the interferometer that cleans up the mode before we send it to the detectors to detect gravitational waves is called the output mode cleaner. And this is a suspended cavity and there is some controls noise from just the, controlling the angle of this suspension. And so we're trying to project where that noise is in our um, in our sensitivity spectrum. So find out where it's coming from. Is that and then yeah. Or also, like, so we have we know what the noise is, and we know what our gravitational wave sensitivity is. And is this coupling strong enough that it's limiting it or not? So just trying to work out where that noise is relative to our gravitational wave sensitivity. Mm. And that's going to take a few days maybe more than that <laughs> to, to do the full projection. But, yeah. And that's one thing, there's a, there's a few months yet to the, the observing one, yet to start, so I'm sure there's a lot of things. Craig, what's your, what's your task for the next few days? What are you, what are you looking at specifically? Um, so I've been thinking, it's sort of the same thing where you take a measurement and then you sit and you think about it really hard <laughs> and then you come back either, you know, a few days or a few months later, depending on the complexity of the analysis and you say, okay, here's some interesting things that I learned about our interferometer, and maybe here's some ideas about making it better. Um, and 
you know, the implications of such a measurement. Some, yeah, some are easier measurements to take than others. Some are very straightforward. Some are um, ones that we've never done before, but we're trying to, you know, make, generate new methods of making the interferometer better. The operators also regularly get their hands dirty, at least in a relative sense. Here's senior operator Corey Gray again. Yeah, so the operators, uh, generally about half of their time or 60% of their time when we're in observing runs is doing shifts. And then the other half of their time, they would have different specialties. And so I was hired uh, at the beginning of Initial LIGO to help build Initial LIGO with a whole team of other people. So I, I've kind of started with the hardware. And so I, I've helped uh, assemble and install a lot of the seismic isolation uh, tables for Initial LIGO and Advanced LIGO, uh, but that's all been done. So uh, more recently, I've been getting trained on how to pull the glass fibers which suspend the, the large test masses or the large mirrors for our detectors. So that's one of the new things I'm learning and I'm uh, having some failures, but I'm learning from those and I'm also going to get some training from the group that uh, uh, kind of developed the process for uh, a lot of the suspension work. So uh, that group is in Glasgow. So I'm going to hopefully get some training with them in, a, in the coming weeks. And we're standing next to a model of one actually in the, in the exploration centre here. So we can see it, it's um, it's about it's about a metre long, a metre, a metre tall, mm -hmm. and it, it is incredibly thin. Yeah. And what's, it looks like a violin string right? yes, or a guitar yes. or yeah, a thin violin violin string. Um, but it's not made of metal. It's made of glass. That's yeah. it's astounding to to look at this. I know, I know. And four of these things that are a metre long and what a fraction of a millimetre thick. Uh, it's five. I can see the label. It's it's uh, four <laughs> millimetre. No, it's half a millimetre wide. Yes, yeah. it's, it's yeah. in diameter. It's really really narrow. And four of them hold up a forty kilogram yeah. mirror. That's. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit insane, right? That's it, crazy. It is pretty amazing, and, and I'm still learning the physics of this. I mean, I've heard that we're, we've we used to suspend our large optics or large mirrors with metal wires, and you, you mentioned violin, like it looks like a violin string. Uh, the, the mechanical resonances of the, of the metal wires and these gla glass fibers, uh, they're, they're fundamental mechanical resonance we call a violin mode or violin resonance. And it's usually right around, for advanced LIGO, it's usually around 500 hertz. And so that's how they're designed. But I, I, uh, what I've heard is that the, the glass fibers that we're using now are better for noise, for getting, uh, they're just a lot quieter than the metal wires that we use for initial LIGO. Uh, but the other thing about them is that their tensile strength, the strength, the vertical strength that they're mainly using to hold a suspension is like steel. It's similar to steel in that direction, the vertical direction. But if you happen to move them, or if you happen to just happen to touch them while, while they're under a load, or while they're suspending something, they explode. So they're very delicate. They're one of the most delicate things because they hold or suspend one of the most precious pieces of glass or objects for the detectors. And, and these mirrors are a few hundred thousand dollars, yeah. and, and then, yeah, four of these holding that up. So you don't exactly. want them to break, right? Yeah. No, no pressure. <laughs> no. Yeah, other people are doing work with the test masses, and I heard, the number I heard was uh, 500,000. So that's like a house, like a, a pretty big house here. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very, so there's that. So they caught the, 
those are very important objects for the machine. And if we did happen to shatter or break these fibers, it also takes a lot of time to go in and replace or fix the problem. So that would also take many hours to, to fix because we'd have to vent a chamber, uh, prepare, and hopefully we have a replacement ready to go and then go in. So it could be, it could set us back quite a, a, a amount of time. Yeah. And so how, how do you, can you describe how they are, how they are pulled? Because they're extruded, if you like, from, from glass. Right? How, how do you make a piece of glass that's a meter long and half a millimeter wide? Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. The glass that we have is something you could buy over the counter from some company uh, in long, you know, meters lengths. And then I cut them down to about uh, six inches. And then that six inch fiber stock is what I would put in this machine that we call the fiber puller. And then once this fiber stock or this piece of thick fiber is put in this machine, we turn on an infrared laser that with this special optics that we have, it's basically the, these optics that look like a donut with the, you know, there's a hole in the middle, but we have uh, one, uh, uh, we have a beam that is hitting a mirror that's spinning and it hits one of those donuts and then that light or that cylinder of light is reflected up and hits another donut uh, mirror and then from that donut mirror it's focused on to the point of that glass and so that focus light is is hitting the, that thick finger type finger type of glass and heating that glass up when we're ready to pull it it heats it up to a molten state so it's soft and then we have this machine that uh, is automated so that when we're ready to pull, we just have one, the upper stage, pull the top end of that piece of glass and it just pulls it. And within about 45 seconds, we have uh, this thin wire or glass fiber that we have here, the thin one that we have right here. And then you can breathe again. And then I can breathe again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's an ingenious process. Uh, it is, it's cool. It's, 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 uh, and, and so critical to the, to the operation of the machine. We're sitting now in uh, the LIGO Exploration Center, which is a new, uh, a new center here for explaining gravitational waves to, to a very general audience. And I'm joined by Dr. Fred Raab, who's Associate Director of the LIGO Laboratory. We sit here in, in eastern Washington state uh, in what's uh, essentially it's the middle of nowhere, right? There's not a lot around here. Uh, there's a few small yeah, towns around. Yeah, anybody who's watched the Western, it looks like that. Yeah. Um, why, why here for this Hanford site? Why, what made you pick, or what made LIGO pick this site? Yeah, so a lot of sites were looked at. Uh, first of all, uh, we devised, you know, requirements that we needed on a site and information that we needed on a site, uh, and, uh, published that, uh, in thing, in, you know, Places that uh, economic development and you know uh, trades, uh, not trades people, but construction companies and other organizations read, and uh, we asked uh, for proposals of people who thought they had interesting sites and uh, told them how we would judge the sites and things like that, and uh, basically, uh, you know, we did a cut just to see if a site was reasonable at all. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, here we're on a pretty flat plane. Uh, you know, if one of the arms had to go 
up the side of a mountain that obviously was a non-starter. Mm. It'd be too expensive to drill through the mountain. Uh, and so, you know, you could eliminate certain sites based on that. Uh, but then there was a very important stage where uh, you had to see if you built one site, what other sites that were proposed could be the second site. Because you, you because had two body problems. two yeah. devices separated by, you know, a continental size distance that, you know, would show exactly the same signal mm -hmm. to be positive that you really had detected a gravitational wave and not some other earthbound uh, generated signal. And so uh, there were two really impressive beauties of the Hanford site in addition to a lot of things that your listeners may not think about. Uh, uh, but one of them uh, was it was uh, on a, an area where we had a lot of good data over a long period of time because uh, this was a part of the Manhattan Project site. And so we had, since World War II, uh, seismometers on the ground and weather data and a bunch of other things. So it was an extremely well-characterized site. But it was so level that you could rotate the detector by 45 degrees quite easily mm. in the construction. And that was important because uh, the two detectors had to have sensitivity to the same polarization of gravitational waves, uh, which means that uh, basically uh, they had to, uh, you know, you would get for free a 90 degree rotation of the device, but otherwise they had to align. So the L's, the L's of these detectors yeah. have to point in the same direction, roughly, or, yeah. or opposites, but yeah. Yeah, so if you, uh, you know, look down uh, an arm, uh, you know, the great circle on one arm should pick up the, uh, an arm of the other device. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so uh, Hanford showed up in, uh, you know, I, I wasn't on the site selection committee, but I know Hanford showed up on many of the mm. site pairs that were in the top rating. So Hanford was selected as one of the LIGO sites here in Washington state, along with its twin down in Louisiana, the LIGO Livingston detector. The rest is history, but it's still being written, not just by LIGO, but by Virgo and Cagra as well. We started off by asking Mike Landry what the point of all this was. Let's finish by asking him where we've got to. So the first iteration of LIGO was running since 2000, so that's 22 years ago. Uh, it then ran for a decade, paused as an upgrade to what's now called Advanced LIGO, and then 2015 made uh, famously the, f the first detection of gravitational waves. And now we're on, the, the experiment's made, what, 90 detections or thereabouts, something like exactly, getting on for 100, yeah. 100 detections. Um, that's, I mean, that's quite something. Uh, gravitational wave astronomy really is, a, really is a field. What have we learned about black holes in that, in, well, in the last seven years that we, we just simply couldn't know before? Such yeah, such a cool time and such rapid development in my mind. It was, I mean, it was unexpected that we made a signal when we did. I mean, I had the sense that we would make a detection after running, 
you know, the advanced LIGO detector, which was built, you know, assembled and installed 2010 to 2014, first observation run in 2015, we ran on our sort of, we, I'm sorry, we made our first detection on about the second or third day of stable running, just this outstanding, loud, clear gravitational wave signal from two 30 solar mass black holes merging together in a sort of death spiral. And uh, that signal was seen in Livingston and uh, the Hanford detectors, uh, nearly coincidentally. And so uh, we you know, immediately learned that binary black holes exist. No one even knew if they, no one ever observed a binary black hole before. And that gravitational waves can be measured. The carry energy can People expected that from the Hulson-Taylor binary pulsar, but it was an important first observation. And then we started to understand the nature of these events, the, the commonalities of binary black holes as we assembled, you know, sort of 87 of them or uh, 86 of them, and uh, the differences. And so we're starting to learn about the populations of these objects now and what what can we learn from that well we start to understand that there may be different sources there may be a component of these binary black hole mergers that are made from pairs of stars that lived out their lives together and one blew up and then the other blew up and had some common envelope phase potentially and some anyways th there were binary black holes that were always together as as stars prior mm -hmm. to that and others maybe a smaller component maybe capture objects where in the centers of galaxies or in globular clusters, you know, really dense stellar environments, that you may have three-body interactions which allow you know, one object to interact and get kicked out and you form a binary system. And the spins of those black holes that form from that system may be quite, um, you know, cannywampus there, not, not aligned mm. or not anti-aligned. And so we're seeing evidence for that, too. So with statistical analysis and getting more and more advanced, you start to learn more about the populations, and that's telling you something about stellar evolution of those systems. And then in the case of binary neutron stars, when we saw a binary neutron star merge in 2017 for the first time, that was observed by a third of the world's astronomers, and it was such a critical event. You learned about the nature of short, gay, uh, short gamma ray bursts, uh, as that was seen by both uh, uh, LIGO and uh, NASA's Fermi space-based detector. You learned about uh, the speed of gravity. You made a direct measurement on the speed of gravity relative to, to light. You measured the expansion of the universe in gravitational waves. You, you uh, electromagnetic astronomers observed the light from this kilonova object that formed afterwards. It tells you about the production of heavy elements in the universe, and it seems this has to uh, become uh, stronger, a case stronger as we get more binary neutron stars, but the sense is that the heavy elements, uh, you know, gold and platinum, melanthanides, these things are formed in kilonova objects, which are the collision of two neutron stars. So just a host of scientific information in that one event, now we get more as we learn more about gravitational waves, other binary systems, or supernovas, uh, the early universe, all of this is a possibility. Pulsar spinning neutron stars tell you about the, you know, the nature of uh, uh, the nuclear environment, the densest mm. nuclear environment we know of that of a, in, inside a neutron mm. star. So there's lots of, lots of new astro astrophysics and relativity uh, to be learned from these mm. objects.
that's it for this month. But it's not quite all from LIGO, and it wasn't all my guests had to say. Next month, we'll hear more about what it takes to run LIGO, how these people got to be where they are, and what some of the broader social issues are. For now, my thanks to Mike Landry, George Mansell, Craig Cahillin, Corey Gray, and Fred Raab. Don't forget, you can find past episodes at pythagastro.uk, where you can also subscribe to the podcast. You can also find us on Spotify. Just search for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. 